as you know, through the book of Romans. And we are going to be in chapter 4 today, uh, beginning verse 1. So if you want to make your way there, you can. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my Aunt Lisa uh, started dating the man that became my Uncle Jerry. And when they first met, she didn't know much about him other than the fact that he was a very nice man who uh, owned the window cleaning company that cleaned the windows at the paint store where she worked. And she knew that he was a, a guy who was open about his faith and talked a lot about Jesus. So she just naturally assumed that this young man was in fact a Christian. And as they got to know each other, she discovered to her dismay that uh, this nice young man with whom she was falling in love was in fact not a genuine Christian, but a member of a cult called the Worldwide Church of God, founded by a guy named Herbert W. Armstrong. And the Worldwide Church of God taught, uh, by the way, it was never worldwide and it was not from God, but um, just in case you were curious, okay, but um, you know, you got to get, you, when you're starting yourself a cult, you've got to have delusions of grandeur, that helps. Um, but in any case, um, it taught its people that salvation came through believing in Jesus and keeping all of the Old Testament feasts and by performing all the correct set of spiritual practices. You had to check all the right boxes. You had to do things like keep the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, live in a tent in your yard and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and... And so to give you just one example, he had for several years, even after they were married, knees that were so calloused, they looked like a camel's, because he spent, from the time he was a young man all the way into his 20s, every day, 30 minutes at least, in prayer. Yeah, they had little rooms they were supposed to go into, and, uh, and you would actually take an alarm clock in with you because... If you didn't pray at least 30 minutes, you know, you're in risk of going to hell. Okay, so you want to set your alarm. And then, of course, you got concerned about, well, wait a minute, I only spent 20 minutes really focused in prayer and uh, 10 minutes with my mind kind of wandering, so maybe I ought to set it for 45 minutes so that I make sure I get 30 minutes in. And you can make yourself nuts that way. You really can. And I cannot describe to you I, can, I, I really cannot because it's never been my experience because I grew up in a home where we learned about grace and we learned about what the Bible says about salvation. But when he first heard that salvation was found by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, it was an enormous relief. It was, it was as if a thousand pound weight had been finally lifted off of his shoulders. And he thought, wow, I'm finally free of all of that mess. He knew in his heart of hearts that he could never be good enough to earn his way to heaven. But this was the only way he knew to get there. 
he thought, well, I'm just going to have to do my best and hope that God thinks it's good enough. And he thought that was the only way. And he met my Aunt Lisa at precisely the point where he was despairing of ever finding a real relationship with God. And I can tell you that there is no joy like there is to be found in being released from the burden, not only of your sins, but of the weight of trying to earn your way into God's favor. People who try to live by the law instead of by grace find the true gospel of Christ to be enormously refreshing. Amen? They do. They all of a sudden are like guys getting out of prison. And perhaps you have come here today, I don't know everybody's own situation, but perhaps you've come here today feeling like a person whom God could never accept. Maybe your mental picture, as you kind of, if you shut your eyes and you think about God and you imagine his expression when he sees you, maybe you're thinking that his expression is one of stern disappointment or even anger and judgment rather than love and grace. And maybe you've tried to live your whole spiritual life by simply trying harder to do what is right. Just, I I messed up, I'm just going to have to try harder. But if that is you, I have wonderful news for you. God's Word tells us there is a different way. And I want to show it to you. Romans chapter 4. Verses 1 to 3, that's where we'll start. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when Paul was writing the book of Romans, one of the issues that was raging in the church at the time was whether or not Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to become Christians. The church at the time Paul was writing Romans was then about, it was just a few thousand people total. I mean, they wouldn't have filled a good basketball stadium. In the entire Roman Empire, there's just a few thousand Christians at the time that Paul is writing this book. And the church at this time is made up mostly of Jews, with just a few little handfuls, little pockets of Gentile people in these little churches that Paul has printed, has planted all around the north rim of the Mediterranean Sea. As he's kind of walking the trade routes along the Mediterranean. He's starting these little bitty churches. But these churches, you shouldn't imagine that they are, you know, Preston Word Baptist Church down in Dallas. It's like 27,000 people. You know, that's not what's going on. These are little bitty groups of people, all of them probably smaller than the group in this room. All of them. And 
And off in Jerusalem and in Israel, you've got the vast majority of the church. These thousands of converts that have come to faith in the Messiah whom God promised to Israel. And a lot of Paul's fellow Jews felt that if you were a Gentile and remained a Gentile, that you had not been circumcised and so forth and become uh, like a Jew in both your body as well as your uh, daily practices and habits, that you were maybe a Christian, but you were kind of second class, really. That you didn't have quite the same status as they did. And that, in fact, people could be saved by faith in Christ, but you'd really be a lot better Christian if you adopted Jewish practices like circumcision and keeping the Sabbath and the dietary laws in addition to your faith in Christ. And so one of Paul's lifelong concerns, and you read about this over and over and over again in all the letters that he writes to Gentile churches in the New Testament, is to continue proclaiming that no one, no one, not Jews, not Gentiles, can be saved by keeping the law, and that there is nothing to be gained by trying to keep it. And salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. There's nothing more to be added to it than that. And because some of his fellow Jews still have trouble with that, uh, Paul uh, is going back to Abraham and giving them the supreme example of a person, uh, of a person who they regard as important and talking about his faith. Now, if you look at these verses with me, you need to remember what justified means. Justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. Now, remember, not innocent, righteous. In other words, we're not simply acquitted of our sin. You know, declared innocent. Okay, God let us off. No, we are declared to possess the righteousness of Christ. That when God looks at us, He does not see us and our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness on, in our account. Okay? So, in other words, um, you know, you remember when you're single and uh, you, you're, you're young and you're like 23 years old and you got like the couch you salvaged from somebody's dumpster and, you know, like a couple cinder blocks with some boards for bookshelves and that kind of thing, right? If, if there was a fire at your apartment, you'd be out like eight bucks, right? Okay. And now imagine that that is your financial situation. And then imagine that you were adopted by Warren Buffett and made his sole heir of all he possesses, right? And you can walk into any store in the country and uh, they do not see the finances of Joseph Horn. They see the finances of Warren Buffett credited to your account, right? So you want to get a new Maserati or three? You can do so, right? Me personally, I want the Bugatti Veyron. You know, it goes, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a two and a half million dollar car and it goes 227 miles an hour 
I want one, okay? <laughs> I want one of those and like about 10 miles of long, straight, even, flat road on which to race the heck out of this thing, <laughs> right? I think it would be a, a real kick, right? But the point is that, that what is not mine has been credited to my account, right? And I didn't do anything to gain it, didn't do anything to work for it or deserve it or earn it, but it has just been given to me as a gift, okay? And in the same way, the righteousness of Christ has been given to us as a gift. It has been credited to our account, We have something that is not ours, but which belongs to us by God's grace. Okay? And Paul is saying, well, consider what Abraham, uh, consider Abraham's faith. Okay? Uh, he was justified. How was he justified? In other words, how did Abraham receive salvation? Uh, you cannot live forever in heaven with God unless you have been justified, unless you have been declared to be as righteous as God is. So what do these three verses tell us about how Abraham received salvation? Was he declared righteous based on his works or based on his faith? Did Abraham get saved when he was circumcised or when he believed God? What does the text say? Paul gives us the answer. He quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him, or if you will, credited to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, uh, God comes to Abraham and he promises Abraham that through his descendants, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And that promise was fulfilled in many ways, many ways. I mean, the Jews as a people have been a phenomenal blessing to the entire world. Uh, you know, the majority of the world's Nobel Prize winners every year are Jews. Uh, they are a phenomenal blessing as a people. But in addition to that, and supreme above all of those other things, is the fact that it is through the line of Abraham that all nations are blessed through the coming of Messiah. That's the biggest one. The biggest blessing to all the nations of the entire world. Because remember, at the, at the final, in the, in, when the kingdom comes, there'll be people there of what? All nations. God's promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. And all nations will be blessed through the line of Abraham, through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's descended from Abraham. And Abraham heard this promise and believed what God was telling him in it, that all nations are going to be blessed through you. And you've been looking for the coming of Messiah for the for the last several thousand years between creation and Abraham. And you've been wanting to know, is it this generation? Is it this generation? Is it this generation? No. And you go through all of this long genealogy of all the nations that come down to Abraham and you haven't seen the Messiah yet. And God tells Abraham, though, 
All the nations are going to be blessed through you. In other words, the Messiah is coming through you, Abraham. Start looking for him. And Abraham, the text says, believed God. Believed God's promise of the Messiah who was coming. And that was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, in other words, got saved the same way that you and I do. By believing God's promise of the Messiah. There's one difference and only one between you and Abraham. It's that he lived 2,000 years before Messiah came. You lived 2,000 years after he came. He was looking forward to Messiah's coming. You're looking back on the fact that he has. But the, the basis of salvation for Abraham and you is identically the same. Faith in the Messiah whom God would provide through Abraham. Now, let me just underline the point of these verses that Paul is making one more time. We are declared righteous by faith. If you want to write the word alone on there, you can, because that is the point that Paul is making, that there's nothing more you need to add to faith to be saved. And he underlines it a little more in the next few verses. Follow along here with me, verse 4 through 8. See, now the, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, if you work a job for money, when you come to the end of the pay cycle and you actually get your check, that makes all of the sweat and work and frustration of dealing with your coworkers and your boss worth it for just a few seconds, right? You get that check and you go... I got paid again. Good. And then you think about where all that money has to go, and then all the joy is gone, right? But, um, but I remember hearing a, a story from a buddy of mine. Uh, he told me uh, that his boss would never pay him on time. You know, every two, week he, two weeks, he was supposed to get his check, and every two weeks would come and go, and he would never get his check. And he was, he was not working for a just a gigantic sum of money. He was living paycheck to paycheck, as a lot of people do. And so, you know, in between the day he was supposed to get paid and the day he actually got paid, there was a lot of macaroni and cheese and ramen noodles being consumed at his house. You understand what I'm saying? And he would have to go, in order to get paid, he would have to go over to his boss's house knock on the door, stand there on the porch while he got his check. And then his boss would say this, well, now be sure you don't spend it all in one place. Okay? He kept that job for seven years, which is just about six years and 11 and a half months longer than I would have. All right? Probably some of you would take my attitude too. Um, he put up with it 181 times longer than I would have. And I, because I just wouldn't, I wouldn't deal with that, right? 
Because when you've been hired to do a job, the person paying you is not doing you some kind of a favor when they pay you. You have agreed to work for a certain amount. And when they pay you, they're not, they're not blessing your life. You gave them your labor and you expect to be paid in return. You earned it. And the boss does not get to give you snide commentary about how and when you spend what is rightfully yours, right? Why not? Because you earned it. This is not a gift. You earned this. Now, the reason I tell you that story is to underline what Paul is telling us in verse 4, that jobs and gifts are not the same thing. Jobs and gifts are not the same thing. If you work, pay is the reward. It is not a gift. It is what you are due. And the point he is making is that salvation cannot be earned. It cannot be earned. It is not the wages that we are paid for being a good person. We don't work our way to righteousness. It's not a gift if it's something that involves work. It's wages. If we have to work for it, it's not a gift. We earned it. Uh, you know, it is not as if, and Paul is trying to tell us this, that it's not as if when we get to heaven, we get there the way the old Smith Barney commercials used to talk about. You remember those? You know, we make our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it, right? And then they got in trouble with the SEC and shut down. But um, <laughs> but because uh, apparently they didn't earn all of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, but that is not the way that you go to heaven. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't work your way there. Our faith, according to verse five, is credited to us. It is credited to us. We don't work. We believe in Him who justifies the ungodly and have our faith credited to us as righteousness. And notice verse 5, if you want to underline some words, if you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, which, by the way, I think is a good thing. We need reminders. Um, it is not that God justifies the nice people. What does it say? It says, who justifies the ungodly. It isn't as if, in other words, that God looks down from heaven and tries to find the nicest and the best and the ones who are trying the hardest and decides to save them. No. God looks down at the seething mass of wicked humanity, which is all that has ever populated the earth with the exception of Jesus. And he says, I will save those people. I will save not the righteous, but the ungodly. And you know why he saves the ungodly? Because it's the only kind of people there have ever been. The ungodly that God saves. God does not say, well, you tried, that's good enough. 
No. He saves us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our unrighteousness, in the midst of being ungodly. God saves us through faith in Christ. And again, in verse 6 through 8, Paul underscores the point that it's not only Abraham, but also David, who was justified by God in precisely this same way, by faith, apart from any works that he had done. And the reason he pulls David out is because to a Jew, there are just a few great heroes of the faith. You know, you've got Abraham, you've got Moses, the next one's David on that list. Because David was the greatest of the kings that Israel ever had. In fact, he is the exemplar that all of the other kings are measured against. If you read Kings and Chronicles, um, which again, I encourage you to do, okay? Uh, if you read these books, what you find out is that they get a, you get a summary of this guy's life and where he, uh, where he landed spiritually, and he gets an evaluation at the end. Either he walked in the ways of his father, David, or he walked in the ways of his father, and they'll give some other person's name, and all of the sin that he caused Israel to commit, or whatever. You know, like he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was an idolater, in other words. Or he walked in the ways of his father David. David is the great example of what it means to, to walk in holiness before God. In fact, David wrote big chunks of the Psalms. He is regarded as this wonderful example and great and godly man. And he is. Amen? However, David was also a great sinner. You may remember a few of these episodes, right? Particularly one involving a, a young lady and some steamy glasses over the roof, right? Um, and, and David writes a couple of magnificent psalms of confession. One of them is Psalm 51 that he writes immediately after the incident with Bathsheba, after he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. And the other is Psalm 32, which is what he, Paul is quoting from here. Blessed is the man whose sin, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. If, and the point for quoting this is this, that if David, who was one of the best, saw God's righteousness as something that couldn't be earned but had to be received as a gift from God, and he does, then surely it must also be a gift for the rest of us too. And the Lord doesn't count, excuse me, doesn't count our iniquity against us. Instead, he counts the righteousness of Jesus as ours when we put our faith in him. So the point so far in these verses is this, that we are declared righteous by faith, by belief, and not by works. But there's one more thing Paul wants us to understand, which is that we are also not made righteous by our performance of religious rites. I want to show you those verses real quickly. 
Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it, be, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, if you look at verse 9, Paul says, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Well, what's this blessing? The blessing he's talking about is not having your sins counted against you. Uh, the blessing of forgiveness. Is that blessing only available to Jews or is it also available to Gentiles? Paul's answer is this. If it's true, and it is, that Abraham was considered righteous by God based on his faith, well, when did that happen? Was it before he got circumcised or was it after? And the reason is, is that Paul is making the point that it's not the performance of the religious ritual that got him saved. It wasn't get circumcised and believe and be counted righteous. God declared Abraham righteous solely on the basis of his faith and then later told Abraham to get circumcised. In verse 11, Paul tells us why God did that. It was a sign and a symbol for Abraham, not for God, but for Abraham, because we need reminders, God is not forgetful, but we need reminders. It was a sign for Abraham of the faith he had already expressed and already and the justification he already possessed that he had received from God when he was uncircumcised. It functioned as a visible, tangible reminder to Abraham of his covenant with God not the means by which God established the covenant, but as a reminder of the covenant he already possessed. In the same way that baptism functions not as something which saves you, but as a reminder of what has already happened to you. It's something you do on the outside to remind you of what you, has happened to you by God's grace on the inside. Because again, God is not forgetful, but we are. And we need some things that happen to us on the outside where we can see it to remind us of what God has done on the inside where we can't. And so Abraham, he, Paul tells us, is the father not only of those who are circumcised uh, as Jews were as infants, but also of those like you and me who are Gentiles who believe, though we did not go through the Jewish ritual. And so according to verses 11 and 12, Jesus, I mean, Jesus, Abraham is both, I feel like I'm in Sunday school, you know, you've heard that joke, right? Teacher asks her, uh, ask her class, um, you know, what, what is it that, that uh, has four legs and climbs a tree and has a fluffy tail and stores nuts for the winter? And the kids all look around and everybody gets quiet. 
One little boy sticks his hands up and he says, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but since we're at church, I'm going to say Jesus. (laughs) Um, Abraham is the father of those who are circumcised who come to faith later. And also the father of those who come to faith and never get circumcised. Both Jews and Gentiles get to claim Abraham as their father if they walk in the same faith that Abraham had. Because it is always and has only ever been through faith that God declares people to be righteous. So that's what our passage is about. Making sure that everybody knows that people are not saved by their works or by religious rituals. They are saved and have only ever been saved by one and only one means, by faith in the Messiah whom God promised. And the only difference between the faith of saints in the Old Testament and your faith is the content of the faith. They look forward to a Messiah who had not yet come whose name they did not know. We look back on a Messiah that has come, whose name we know, whose words and works we can read about, whose death we understand in a a greater way than they did, but the basis of their salvation and ours is still the same, faith in the Messiah whom God promised. And with that in mind, I just want to give us a real quick bit of application here. Are you ready? Here's what it is. You can relax. You can rest. You don't have to work and strive and try and sweat to make yourself acceptable to God. Do you know why? Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you already are acceptable to God. There is nothing more you need to do to make God love you. He already loves you as much as He is ever going to, and as much as it is possible to love you, He loves you. And there is nothing you can do that will make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do that will make God love you less. We are justified and we are loved with an everlasting love that will never turn us loose. See also Romans chapter 8. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is a part of many of us, I think, that can't quite believe that. That we love the law and we want to feel like we somehow earn God's love. And I think that's maybe because that's how everything works in our, in our lives down here. If you want something, you have to earn it. But God gives it to us as a gift. He loved us when we were sinners, and He sent Christ for us. He justifies not the good and the godly and the people who try really hard, but the ungodly and the wicked. And so we, when we do good works, we are not doing them in order to gain God's approval. We are doing them because we already possess God's approval and we love Him. And we want to reciprocate the love He has shown, not as a means of making God love us. 
their aspect of our service to the Lord is an aspect of worship of the God who loves us, not a way of saying to him, see God what I did there? Do you like me now? No. God already loves you supremely. He already has demonstrated it for you in Christ. And there is nothing you can do that will ever make God love you anymore because he already loves you perfectly. All we need to do is be recipients of God's love through faith in Christ. Amen? All right. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your magnificent love. We thank you that you are the God who justifies not the righteous but the sinner, not the godly but the ungodly, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy you saved us. Uh, Father, when we serve you, we pray that we might do so not out of a spirit of obligation or out of a spirit of trying to earn your approval, but out of love and gratitude and wonder that you would send Christ for us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.